Today we are continuing, we're going to be preaching through the book of Acts because that's normally uh, what we do preaching-wise in this church. We normally preach our way through books of the Bible because that's what we would naturally and normally do when we're reading the Bible for ourselves at home. It allows us to put things in their right context to having known what's come beforehand. Plus also it prevents me from just having an agenda and saying what I feel like saying. If you go through whole books of the Bible, then you have to cover the material that God has made known to us. So this is where we're up to in the book of Acts. We actually did break our Acts series up into three sections over three years, not because it was three years long worth of preaching, uh, but we're just doing smaller sections in each of the last year, this year and next year, just to keep reminding us about the growth of the early church and the call of everyday Christians to go and make disciples of all nations. So I've got nothing, nothing of my own that's worth saying, but God does. So we're going to come before him in prayer asking that he would work through our time together now as we look to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, that you are living and active We thank you that your word is living and active, that it is just as relevant for us today as it was to the people to whom it was originally written. Uh, Lord, your desire to see uh, disciples made of all nations is still the very desire of your heart and will remain the desire of your heart until you return again. And Father, we pray as we look and we see the things which happen in the early formation of churches, uh, that we'd be encouraged by them that we'd be corrected by them where need be, Uh, but, Lord, that we would see something more of your heart and what you have called us to personally. So change us uh, through our time looking at your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was a young fella, I had four fish. Hurgle, burp, gulp and gurgle, creative names, I know. Now, at this point in time, neither of our children have asked to have a pet. We've got a dog. They love the dog most of the time. The dog loves them most of the time. But I've decided even before they ask, if they ask, can we have fish? The answer is, no, you cannot. The local supermarket where we go to, there's a hairdresser right next to the entrance to the Woolworths with with their little aquarium and fish. And so I was like, if you want to look at fish, there's your chance. Take it while you can. See, Hurgle, Burp, Gulp and Gurgle, they got everything they needed. Made sure it changed the water regularly, made sure the pH was right, changing the filters and everything, and getting everything just the way it should be, the way the the people at the vet store told me it should be done. Even though everything seemed like the best possible environment for Hurgle, Burp, Gulp and Gurgle to thrive, they didn't. They didn't last particularly long at all. They'd all get to that point where they'd swim down for a little bit, then nature would float them back up again until eventually they didn't do the swim down bit, they just did the floating bit. (laughs) And after mourning the deep loss of hurgle, burp, gulp and gurgle, and chatting to other people for many years since then, because I was a little child and now I'm just a childish adult, realised this is actually a common experience. A lot of people say, I did all the things you should do, and things just didn't work out. I'm not going to say this as a professional opinion, but it seems from the discussions I've had, the best thing you can do to make your fish live forever is to just neglect them. People who do nothing, their fish just seem to go forever. Now, that's not a professional advice, so if you've got fish, don't necessarily take it on board. But the point is, there are some things in life where 
we think under certain circumstances, things will really thrive. If we just have this type of environment or these type of parameters, things will naturally be good and successful. But when it comes to ministry of the gospel, how do you determine what is a conducive environment for a ministry that will thrive? Last week when we were looking through the first half of chapter 16, we saw three different occasions where either people or God did things which to us seem counterintuitive to getting that particular response that God actually used them for the growth of the church. Now first there was that split between Paul and Barnabas and you think division's not a good method and it's not. But God worked out of that, went from one missionary team of Paul and Barnabas to being Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark, two missionary teams, both sent out with the blessing of the church. And then there was Paul insisting on Timothy to be circumcised when they're going out with a letter telling the churches the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, yet the church continued to thrive. Now, Paul and Silas, as they went out, they went on to encourage the churches where they'd already established them to see how they were going. Remember the initial call at the beginning of Acts was that the gospel was to go out to Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And last week, there was two things which were really, really bizarre on surface reading. In particular, there's one where it said the Holy Spirit forbid them preaching the word in Asia. Holy Spirit, forbid them from preaching the word. And then just the next verse after that, in verse 7, and the Spirit of Jesus prevented them, stopped them from going to Bithynia. So it's a little bit hard to compute how God would actually close doors on gospel ministry. But then after that, after having two doors closed, then one was opened. One night, Paul had a vision, whether it was a dream or whatever it was, of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. Now, Paul just didn't just presume, oh, I've had a dream, therefore I must go do something. We saw how he shared with others and collectively they concluded this was God leading them to go share the gospel in Macedonia. Now, you might think, now this is going to be an absolutely bumper evangelistic ministry. Because God has closed doors, he's called them to this particular one through this particular means. And it might have been. But in the book of Acts, Luke focuses on three particular individuals. So if last week was about three unusual methods that God used for growth, over the next two sermons, I was going to say next two weeks, but next week Andrew Clark from St David's is preaching here next week. Next two sermons, we'll see good fruit coming in three very unexpected places. Like if we talked about situations or environments where you think this is where gospel ministry is going to thrive, well, these ones we're going to look at over the next two sermons probably aren't those. The way we've seen things working throughout the book of Acts, you think this is how it's probably going to work. Paul's got this habit where he goes first to the synagogue where at least people have got half of the story and he shows them that all of their hopes and expectations are fulfilled in Jesus. And then you think, maybe there's some tensions going to come up. There'll be an opportunity before a large crowd to defend and proclaim the gospel. 
But instead of that, what we get is this. We get Philippi, a city that doesn't have a synagogue, and the title I quite like, a demon-possessed promotional heckler. So let's look at those first five verses. That the city has no synagogue. We see recorded at the beginning of our reading of the journey which they took to get to Philippi. But throughout that journey, it doesn't actually say what happened along the way. It just said they went from Troas, then to Semothrace. That could be very poorly pronounced, and there's a modern picture of that big rocky island. To Neopolis, and again, a current picture. And Philippi, a current picture with some of the ruins of the ancient city there. Even though we don't know what happened along each of those steps of the way, from what we see in Paul's regular day-to-day ministry, most likely he shared the word at each of those places along the way, but that's not Luke's particular focus. He can't share every single detail that ever happened. But Paul had an established habit, didn't he? When he would go to a town, he would start at a synagogue. It seems a, a, a clever place to start. The people who have already understood the first half of what God has done and the hopeful expectation of a saviour who would one day come. But the synagogues he visited, they were really a mixed bunch. It wasn't just Jews who were there. It was a mixture of Jews as well as Gentiles who'd come to believe in the God of Israel. So in one sense, they already half the story and they were awaiting a saviour So Paul took the opportunity to proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ. But wherever he did that, there were mixed responses, wasn't there? There were some who rejoiced in the wonderful salvation that was offered, but others, it actually sparked hostility and suffering. When Paul comes to Philippi, there's no synagogue. One of the requirements for a synagogue was you had to have 10 men in attendance for the formation of a synagogue. But what we read there in verse 13, this place of prayer, which was like a place where people would meet when there wasn't enough numbers for a synagogue, it was only women who had gathered in this place that was outside of the gate. So you get a bit of a perspective of, A, there's no, nothing by way of major signs of this being a place that was conducive to seeking after God. And not only were there not people known to be seeking after God, even those small group of women who were, as they're placed outside of the city gates by the river, clearly they're not looked upon favourably upon the city. They were kind of outsiders both geographically, but also the way which they were looked upon by others. But when Paul gathers with them, he does what he always does, and what you and I always do, he talked about the things that he's passionate about. And Paul's greatest passion is to proclaim the gospel, to share the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, all of the women who were there heard every single thing that that Paul shared, although Luke focuses specifically on one of them, a woman named Lydia. Now, Lydia was a successful businesswoman trading in purple linen, which is primarily for the rich or also for royalty, so she was quite well off. When you think, well, here goes Paul, this is Paul's ministry, this is going to be phenomenal. Sometimes we think, and we look up to people like Paul and think, I wish I could have a ministry like Paul's. But let me remind you one thing. 
Paul did not save a single person. And that should encourage us. When the church in Corinth was thinking highly about particular apostles, one over the other, this is how Paul set the record straight. He said, what then's Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you are believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul is clearly saying in all of his ministry, every single one of those conversions, every single element of spiritual growth in a person, how much of that belonged to Paul's work? Zero. He contributed zero to conversions, to growth. The only thing he contributed was his availability and his faithfulness. Which means that the effect of all conversions, all of the spiritual growth in people, was 100% the work of God. Why do I say this should encourage us? Is because the things that we tend to get most anxious about, talking to people about Jesus, are the things which Paul says amount to nothing in terms of the effectiveness of ministry. But it also means that 100% of what made Paul's ministry effective is available to us also. And Paul specifically hones in on what made a difference as Lydia listened. As she listened from the city where she's from, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God, so she was um, in line with the Jewish beliefs, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Now it's very possible that other Women in that gathering came to be converted at that point in time. But the focus here that Luke is speaking about is particular Lydia. And what made the difference between Lydia and others who heard the exact same message was that God opened her heart. And it's a necessary part of it. If God does not open our hearts to see the goodness of the gospel and our need of a saviour, we won't. The Bible very clearly articulates that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Our natural fleshly response is to think this is idiotic. This is insane. But when God opens our heart to see the good news of the gospel, then it becomes attractive. It becomes what we want. So anytime that someone hears the good news, that there is a good God who created all this beautiful stuff we see around us, who gave us lovingly every single thing that we need in this world, but we've dishonoured him by saying, thanks, thanks for all the stuff, but I don't want you in my life, I'm just going to do my own thing, and we deserve to die for that. Yet he sent his son to come bear our punishment on our behalf so that we don't have to, so we can be forgiven and we can enjoy all of those blessings of a relationship with him again. And if you hear that, and you hear that as good news, that's because God has opened your heart to see it. That's the good news that it truly is. And you can say, you have personally experienced the work of God in your life. But the same God who can open your heart to see the goodness of things is the same God who can work in you to change other aspects of your life as well. 
As Lydia's heart was open, she responded in faith and she was baptised. A few weeks back, we had baptisms for a number of people here in our church. They weren't new believers, just like unlike Lydia in this particular occasion. And it's something which I'd like to see happen a lot more in this church. Not just from people who just haven't got around to doing it yet, but those as well. But by seeing people come to know Jesus for the first time as everyday people just tell, talk to their friends about Jesus. Now this concept of a household baptism, this is the second time we've seen one in the book of Acts. We can only presume that Paul also shared of the, the hope in Jesus with the household. But the concept of a household being baptised in and of itself is not proof that an infant was baptised. On none of of those occasions does it specifically mention an infant being baptised. But it also needs to be said that the position and the view of infant baptism does not depend upon household baptism. It's actually built on um, other things as well. But what does need to be said, in all four of the household baptisms recorded in the scriptures, this is the only one of them that does not say a way in which the whole household responded in some way to the gospel message. And as she was baptised, she urged Paul and the others to stay with her as a way of saying, do you believe that I have come to this faith? It seemed that she insisted they would stay with her, that they would continue to encourage her in the gospel that she's come to place her faith in. So it's an unlikely environment. No synagogue, a small group of women meeting outside of town, but salvation came to that place. And if that was an unlikely encounter, even more unlikely, the demon-possessed promotional heckler. I don't believe that anyone's got that on their business card. So she stayed there for a while. Another Sabbath day, they go again to this place of prayer. But on the way this time, Paul encounters another woman. An even less likely encounter. With a very odd sequence of events. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and asked, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Interesting sequence of events, isn't it? So she's got an evil spirit, able to... Help her do fortune telling. She's making a lot of money, not for herself. The owners are exploiting her for, for them to make the money. And here she is saying, these guys here, these guys are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It's almost like she's their, their own personal marketer. Saying, if you want to know about salvation, come see these guys. It's an interesting contrast between, between Paul and this lady. Paul, through his ministry, who sees people come to, from death to life as they come to trust in Jesus Christ by a power that's not his own. And now you've got this poor slave girl being exploited, telling fortunes by a power that's not her own. And it's not unusual for someone who is demonically possessed to recognise and proclaim true things about God. Remember, in Jesus' ministry, quite often, the people who were demon-possessed, the demons would say more truthful statements about who Jesus was than a lot of the Jewish people would. So it seems strange that here this person is saying, these guys are servants of the Most High God, 
and they proclaim to you the message of salvation. After a while, for Paul, this promotional heckling, we're calling it, as it continued to go on, different translations say he was either disturbed, either disturbed by what is happening in the life of this girl, both the exploitation but also the, uh, the demonic influence on her. Some translations, like the ESV, which we had read, says he was annoyed. And the word does have the full spectrum of those meanings in it. And he commands in the name of Jesus to, to that girl, come out. Immediately the spirit left. So did all of the skills went with it. Now some people might think, why would you stop that? Here she is saying, these guys are servants of the Most High God, proclaiming the message of salvation. That's free promotion. But when you look at it closely, I think primarily Paul had a concern for this poor girl who was oppressed by an evil spirit and also being exploited by owners. I don't know if Paul was aware of that at the point in time. So that's his primary concern, to set this girl free. But then on the other hand, do you really want someone who's known to work in demonic spirits to be seen as being your promotion person as though you're on the same team, sharing in the same ministry? Now, no doubt, this was a wonderful day for the girl. She's no longer bound by this demonic spirit. But also for the people of Philippi, who witnessed these events, who'd seen the things that she had done and acknowledged and recognised the power she had, have just seen that in the name of Jesus Christ was a power that was able to cast it out instantly. While many might have rejoiced in this, not everyone's too happy. Here is a set of owners who had a slave girl who was bringing them in some good coin and now she's no good at the job. Now before you feel sorry for her or for them, it's like, oh no, they're they're deprived of an income. They're exploiting this poor slave girl who was possessed by an evil spirit. But it wasn't just the owners who were so upset. They were so upset, they dragged Paul and Silas into the market before the rulers for setting this girl free. And as they bring the claims before the rulers, their claims are, this guy has taken away our income, because they realise that's very self-oriented. They word it in such a way that appeals to the people to get the result they want. They say, these Jews... So the Jews were not looked upon favourably by the people, so they highlight the fact these Jews... We sort of see something of that disdain by the, the meeting of these people outside of the city gate. They're teaching and encouraging people to do things that are not acceptable for us Romans. Now, under Roman law, there was a list of acceptable religions. Judaism was one of them. Christianity was not on that list. But in the end, they just wanted to get something back. Have you taken away our income? We want you to cop it. They were clearly effective in manipulating the crowds who join in attacking Paul and Silas, who end up getting beaten by rods, put into jail, put in the stocks. And when you heard that reading, you probably thought, Steve, you finished at verse 24. It's not exactly a happy ever after place to finish the story, is it? What happens afterwards? Well, good news is it's in your Bible, so if you can't wait two weeks, you can read it beforehand. But we've seen a number of occasions throughout the book of Acts when some of the Christian leaders were put into prison and God, either through an angel or an earthquake or other things, has 
provided a way of escape for them. But next week, we're going to see an earthquake happens, the opportunity for escape is there, and they stayed in. This was the first ever historical record of a sit-in. And a sit-in with wonderful results. So what do we make of the story so far? There's no doubt that a lot more things happen in Philippi than what Luke records in Acts. Both Luke and God, who is inspiring Luke as he writes, no doubt had reasoning in selecting particular encounters to go into detail of. But as Paul has been travelling and sharing the good news of the gospel, it's with mixed reactions. There's been rejoicing for those who've come to salvation and there has been intense suffering. We saw one week when Paul was stoned for proclaiming Jesus. They dragged him outside of the city because they thought he was dead. Yet Paul continues to preach the name of Jesus Christ because he knows it's the only hope for all humanity. How can I have a good news that delivers people from the natural consequences of their rebellion against God and have all the blessings of relationship with him and not tell people about it? The God who made all, who's above all, that we turned against, has sent his son, who would rather than give us what we deserve for our rebellion, who came to take it on our behalf. We read in one of the gospel accounts when Jesus walked into town and he had compassion upon them. It says, he saw them and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that word for compassion, like they had a deep wrenching in their guts for seeing the lost state that they were in. And this is the compassion of our God who sent Jesus to take our punishment for us so we can be restored and forgiven. And Paul, as a follower of Jesus, follows in that step of even to those who greatly opposed him. He had a compassion to share with them the hope of the gospel. Because he knows where the gospel is proclaimed, God continues to open up hearts. When he opens up hearts, he saves people. He saves people from their sin and the consequences of their sin. From their slavery to their flesh and Satan. And save them from an everlasting death. But we don't just have the record of what God did in one successful businesswoman. Matter of fact, when you look through the Gospels and throughout Acts, more often than not, it's those who are not well esteemed in the eyes of the world that we see responding in faith to Jesus Christ. And our passage isn't just a message about a God who forgives and a God who saves. But as we see that second encounter, we see a God who forgives and saves and a God who has the power to set you free. Now, I need to preface this by saying that I'm not talking prosperity gospel. I'm not talking this idea that if you come to Jesus that you will never have trouble in your life. You'll just have financial riches. You'll never get sick. That's heresy. That is not in the Bible. We've seen the suffering which Paul and all the other apostles got. Matter of fact, of all the, the original apostles, John was the only one who was not directly killed for his faith. Although they did put him in a pot of a big thing of burning oil, with a, but he didn't actually die from that. That's not in the Bible. 
That's not what I'm talking about. But when God opens up hearts to see the goodness of the gospel, have you ever noticed it's our natural response, if you remember back to that time, or if you're in that time, where the first thing you do is think, I'm convinced of this. I believe this is appealing to me, and I've just heard that that means that God's at work in my heart. But now I've got this list of reasons why it's just that little bit too hard, or why I can't do that right now. Now, when that was myself, 23 years ago now, that was like, I believe the gospel. I believe what Jesus has done. I believe all of his claims. But I also know how I'm living, and I've seen enough of of Christian circles to know how Christians should live, and I don't know if this wants to become this or if this could become this. I can thankfully say God has been faithful to all of his promises, to that work that he's begun. He's continuing to do that work. But the same God who opens hearts demonstrate his power to set us free from all of those other doubts and all those other things that we might set up in our mind as reasons why this truth which is appealing to us that we think not just now or can't do for this reason. We can have confidence where God opens hearts to the gospel. Every hindrance, every hesitation that comes to mind, every excuse... God has the power and the ability to set us free from. So if you're in that situation, that in hearing the good news of the gospel, you feel God has opened up your heart to see the beauty and the goodness and that is desirable to you, then regardless of what list of things your mind naturally comes to your mind and you're not unusual if you've got objections immediately coming to mind, I can say, come to him in faith and in repentance. The stuff that you're not sure how he's going to work out, he can and will. And then on the other hand, if you're already a Christian, I want you to be encouraged to go forth with the gospel wherever you go, knowing that God opens hearts, that gospel effectiveness has 0% to do with you other than your availability, your willingness and your faithfulness, and 100% to do with the work of God, who is the same God who worked through Paul and the other apostles. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you work sometimes in ways that we wouldn't expect. We see you work through people we wouldn't expect you to work through, and we see you work in people who, by whatever measures we may apply, we might not think that you might work in. But such is the nature and the power of the gospel that it, it's described in terms of bringing people from death to life. Not from sick or slightly unwell. And because you have all power and all authority, then the doors are flung wide open as to who the gospel can effectively save. There is no one too sinful, too rebellious, too much guilt, too much uh, regret from their past for whom the shed blood of Jesus Christ is not 100% sufficient. And Lord, we thank you that you not only continue to open hearts, but you can be trusted to set us free from every thought and hindrance that comes to our mind as we think about walking in obedience to you. So Lord, we thank you for that and we pray that um, even as we gather this morning, that Christians would be encouraged 
And if there are some who are still seeking Jesus, uh, that, Lord, that if you have opened their hearts, that they might respond to you in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.